Well, we're still journeying through the Bible. We're still looking at this message called about the topic of the kingdom of God. Um, we started again in Genesis. We've been working our way through. Uh, we felt this. I felt this was important because everything in the Bible revolves around this idea of the kingdom of God. Um, you hear about it throughout the Old Testament. You hear Jesus talking and preaching it as it goes around from village to village, and you see the apostles preaching it after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and they're going around sharing the gospel. They're going around preaching the kingdom of God. And so I felt it was important for us to, to get this concept of the kingdom of God clearly in our minds. And that's best by spending a lot of time talking about it, working through it, and then repeating it over and over. Um, today's message is called The Coming Messiah. So far we've journeyed from Genesis and looked through the story through Abraham, uh, through Moses, and, and through Saul, Solomon and Saul, and David, and, and, uh, and, and Samuel, the prophet. And so here I want to take a second before we jump into, uh, uh, too far into the, the old, rest of the Old Testament and the prophets. I want to just kind of backtrack a little bit and then, and then bring it back to Isaiah. After the first kings, well, let's, let's, back, let's back all the way up. Uh, the story about this idea that there's going to be a coming Messiah. You know, we don't use the word Messiah very often. So, uh, you know, some of you may have a good understanding of that word, um, but it's not something we use on a regular basis. I mean, in the United States, king is not a word we use on a regular basis, but we all have a really good idea of a king and so this Messiah was the one who was going to be a king, and he was going to save. And so he was going to be the, the saving king that they were all looking forward to. It starts all the way back in Genesis. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so we see all the way back to the very, very, very beginning with Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned against God and they listened to the serpent, God made a promise right then and there that one day there would be one who will crush your head even though you will strike his heel. And so if you try to get this picture in your mind, Adam and Eve, there's no way they could have possibly understood how this was all going to play out. Nobody throughout history was able to figure out how this is all going to play out, including Satan. That's how he was able to fall for the trap. Um, but here, from the very beginning, you have this idea that there would be one, and you imagine this snake, and you imagine this person. Let me just give a little personal experience um won't say too much but i will say that last week was it last week that we were sitting outside behind the shop cleaning cleaning up yeah it was just this past week within this past week um me and Lindsay were sitting out back behind the shop um cleaning up and then i saw what looked like a puddle of oil or something in the road and i looked a little bit later, that puddle looked like it had gotten closer to the center line. So I was like, you know what? I don't think that's oil. I think that may be a snake. So I got up and walked over there, and sure enough, it was a, a timber rattler. 
And so, yeah, we we are blessed to have all the every version of rattlesnake, moccasin, everything else venomous you can think of around here. But here was a small, young timber rattler hadn't even gotten his rattles yet. It was probably about a foot and a half long. Uh, but where there's a young timber rattler, there's a mommy and a daddy and siblings somewhere. Um, but just imagine that for a second. You know, some people, I'm not going to say anything about me because I don't know if you know this, but they are protected species in the state of Georgia. It is illegal to kill any venomous snake. It's illegal. So some people would see a venomous snake and they would imagine the story here, go and try to kill the snake. Now, I don't know anybody that would try to kill a snake with their foot. I really, I just really don't. Um, but that's the picture that God paints. Is that there would be, maybe just by whatever the case might be, there would be one who would come, and the serpent, you have a picture of this serpent who has to crawl on its belly, so it's a snake. Imagine a snake. You have a picture of a snake, and you have a person crushing the snake's head, and at the same time that he crushes the snake's head, the snake bites into his heel. And so it's a double, it's a double blow. The man kills the snake, but at the same time, the snake kills the man. And so it's, a, it's, a odd, it's an odd picture. But it gives this picture from the very beginning that one day one will come who will overthrow you and sacrifice himself in the process of doing so. And thankfully, God was vague. Thankfully, he didn't just explain it all out because then, because as we see, Satan didn't figure it out. He didn't understand that by killing Jesus, which he instigated the people to do, after he tried to tempt Jesus to bow down and worship to him and Jesus wouldn't do it, Satan's only response left was, okay, well, I'm just going to kill you. And so by killing Jesus, we all are now saved. And that is how he was defeated. And had he figured that out, then he would not have tried to kill Jesus because that's how he was defeated. That's how his head was crushed, by striking Jesus' heel. But we see this picture of a promise of one to come all the way back in Genesis. And I'm going to try my best to remember to come back to another important point I want to make about this at the end. But let's jump forward. So then we move to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So again, we have this picture again with Abraham, the, the, the father Abraham, that Jesus makes another promise that one will come through you, a descendant, a line of people will come through you, and all the world will be blessed through you. And so we have this building of this idea that you will be a great people. In other words, you will be a great kingdom. And what does a kingdom have to have? A king. So you take Genesis, where he said, one will come who will crush the serpent, and then you have this idea that now there's going to be this chosen kingdom, which implies a chosen king. And people are starting to put this together. But then you move on to Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. 
And so Jacob, who has been repeated the same promise, he makes, uh, he makes prophetic statements about his children. And then if we skip down to uh, Judah in chapter 10, it says the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Where did he get this from? And this is something I want to I remind people of. Y'all see this book right? We call it a book, okay? The New Testament was written approximately 2,000 years ago, okay? There was a 400-year period from the end of the writing of the Old Testament to the New Testament, a 400-year period of no prophets. But then you have all the way back to 1400 BC when Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses is attributed to writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 1400 B.C. plus 2000 A.D. That's 3,500 years ago. 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. is the time period that the entire Old Testament was written. This is what we, I just want to stress to people so much. Genesis was written, Genesis, that we're reading this from, everything I've read you so far, was written 1,400 years before Christ. And then the books that were written after those were subsequently written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years spaced out. Think of all these other religions that I mention up here a lot of times. I mention Muhammad. I mention Joseph Smith. I mention the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mention these other groups because they have people at the beginning of the institution of these religions, they have people who claim to be prophets. Okay, Muhammad claimed to be a prophet. He made prophecies. Joseph Smith claimed to be a prophet. And then uh, the, the writings of the Jehovah's Witnesses um, were written by men who claimed to be prophets. And they made prophecies. And they said, this is when the world is going to end. And this is, this is when Abraham and all of them are going to come back. And Jesus is going to come back. And it's going to happen in the year 1917. And they made all these prophets and had all these people begin to follow them and follow them and follow them. And they started these other religions. And the prophecies did not come true. Now... If some of Jesus' followers decided, I'm going to go back and I'm going to write this whole book, then we wouldn't have as Christians much to stand on today. But Jesus' followers didn't write Genesis. Isaiah didn't write Genesis. David didn't write Genesis. This was thousands of years prior that these things were written about one who would come who would defeat the serpent. And then a kingdom that would be established. A kingdom that to Abraham, told Abraham that you will be a father of many nations and that you will be a great nation and I will bless you and you will, have a bit, you will be a kingdom. And these prophecies were made over and over and over. This time, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, and they all tie together and work together to tell one immaculate story that culminated in one person, Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that one person wrote this whole story, and his name is God. I'm convinced. Because you can't hold that kind of prophetic scripture, prophecies, up to any other writings. Nothing else holds water. 
This is amazing to me. This is amazing to me. And so uh, some people ask me, you know, why do I believe the Bible is true? And one of my strongest convictions is because of the prophets. These prophets wrote all these prophecies and told this narrative story that eventually all came to fulfillment and played out over hundreds of years' time, and it all came true. And you look at the other religions, and you look at their prophets and their prophecies, and they didn't come true. That gives me a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence that this is true. So he talked about that uh, when he when all right. So so when he when Jacob prophesied about Judah out of nowhere, you're reading this story and you're reading Genesis and you're reading Genesis and you're reading Genesis. You get to chapter forty nine, and out of nowhere, I mean Judah at this point didn't have a good past. Okay, out of nowhere at this point. He just comes out and just says, oh, by the way, the one who's coming that will have this eternal kingdom is coming from the line of Judah. That's called a prophecy. And if he was wrong, it wouldn't have happened. But it did. I, I just, I know I sound crazy up here, but it just, it just amazes me. You know, just, it just amazes me how we, you know, all these different little things that are said that are so specific and important that didn't have any explanation before they were said all come to fulfillment and make sense in Jesus. You know, when he says that the, 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 the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until, the, until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. That, you just can't convince me that over this long a period of time that this was just made up somehow and everything turned out right. We jump forward, Second Samuel. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. And this is, this is where David decided he wanted to build a house for God. So God says, now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not come to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When the time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Let me back up and just say this right here. David said he wanted to make a house for God, and and I don't really know Hebrew. I'm just going off of what people who know Hebrew told me, so I'm just passing it along. But David said he wanted to build a house for God, which is one Hebrew word, and then God said that you're not going to build a house for me, and then he used a different Hebrew word to say, but I'm going to build a house for you. And they say that that, that second Hebrew word that God used to talk about the house for David is more on the lines of dynasty. You know, this is the idea of you wanted to build a little house for me. I'm going to build a huge dynasty for you in honor of what you want to do for me because your heart is right. And that's the whole point of David as king. David's heart was right before God. And so David wanted to honor God and wanted to build him a house. But in God's mind, he's like, okay, this house, which, by the way, was immaculate and huge and splendid and, and absolutely gorgeous, 
you know, when, when Solomon's temple eventually got built. It was amazing. But God's like, okay, this little house is nothing compared to the house or a.k.a. the dynasty that I'm going to give you, which is the descendant, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say, I'll build a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you, after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words in this entire vision to David. And so then we have this, this is where this comes from, this idea that this king that we're looking forward to, that's going to crush the serpent, that is going to come from the line of Judah, now we know is going to come from the line of David. And because God has promised that David, that one of his descendants will have a kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. And that is a lofty, lofty promise to make. Then you jump forward to Isaiah. This is where we get a little bit past where we left off last week. So Isaiah is full, I mean slap full of prophecies about the coming Messiah. I want to read one that I know you're really familiar with. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. Now just just to clarify, this means all the wars and battles and fighting will be done away with. You'll have peace. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who doesn't know, is not familiar with this verse? Here we have God prophesying through Isaiah something that I promise you Isaiah could not have understood. I just just can't imagine he could understand what this meant. They said, a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, The government will be on his shoulders, so this is clear. This is the one. The wars will end, the battles will stop, the oppression will end. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be the one that obedience to the people belongs to him. And he says, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That is crazy. That a child will be called Mighty God, an eternal father. Because they already know who mighty God and eternal father are. Yahweh. They already know. But somehow, if you read this prophecy at face value, it means Yahweh will be born to us. If you just take it at face value. Which the people at the day could not have possibly taken at face value. They had to have assumed this means something else. 
And Isaiah had to have been looked at God and said, are you sure about this? Are you sure this is what you want me to say? But we know that's exactly what happened. He said, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So here's this prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of this coming Messiah. He will establish this reign on the throne of David that will never end. His justice and righteousness will, 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 will go on forever and ever. And he will establish peace for, for the nation of Israel and lift all of their oppression and set the world at peace. Isaiah goes on in chapter 16 and says this, A throne will be established in love, and one will sit on it faithfully in the tent of David, judging and pursuing what is right quick to execute justice. And so it's, it's absolutely clear who this Messiah, what this Messiah is going to be like, and that he's going to come from the, the line of David. Then you jump to Ezekiel chapter 37, 21 to 24. God says, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. And so Isaiah and Ezekiel, they talked about what this king is like and what the kingdom is going to be like. And they said, you know, they went into exile as a divided kingdom. And he says that I'm, God said, I'm going to bring you out of exile as a united kingdom. There will be one kingdom. There won't be a divided kingdom anymore. It will be one kingdom. And I'm going to give you one king, the son of David, or sometimes referred to my servant David, the, a descendant of David. And he will rule over you with justice and righteousness. And he will establish peace. And he will make everything perfect. I mean, they had a beautiful promise to look forward to by God. A promise that they could count on because they've seen throughout their history how many times God has fulfilled his word. Every time God said he's going to do something, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, I'm going to make you into a nation, I'm going to do all these things. They've seen him fulfill his promises over and over and over and over, and they had a beautiful future to look forward to. And then you read Micah. Micah said in Micah 5-2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And this is where it just keeps getting deeper and deeper into the truth of Jesus as the, and, and God as the Trinity that we all hold to, the Trinity, but something that the Jewish people could not have possibly understood how this is even possible. And so here we see not only is he going to be from the descendant uh, from the line of Judah. He's going to specifically be a descendant of David, and he's going to come from Bethlehem. So the prophecies just keep getting stronger and stronger and more specific and more specific. And then, I didn't put it in here, but in Daniel, there's a prophecy in Daniel that says that he will come, in, it'll be, you know, the first temple was destroyed, and then it said he will come before the destruction 
of the temple again. So in other words, the temple was going to be rebuilt, and then before it was destroyed again, the Messiah would come. So when you start narrowing this stuff down, and keep in mind, before the New Testament, this was written over a thousand-year time period. Over a thousand-year time period of all these different people, they start keep giving more specific, more specific, more specific. He's going to come from the line of Judah. He's going to come from David. He's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to come before the temple that is going to be rebuilt, is rebuilt, and then before it's destroyed again. And so they start narrowing down time and place. Do you know how few people, how few people could have lived in Bethlehem during this time period that could have fulfilled this prophecy? The numbers of somebody, because you can't, we can't do it. We can't study the scripture and say, oh, you know what? I think I'm starting to figure this out. I think if I come up with this plan that I get myself crucified, okay, I'm out. Right there, I'm out. But let's just go on. If I come up with this plan to do this, then uh, I could probably pull this off. Oh, that's right. I wasn't born in Bethlehem. So I'm out. I'm not from the line of David. I'm out. I was born in 1986. I'm out. And so here's the thing. You know, when you start narrowing down to the group and the small numbers of people, it's statistically impossible that anyone could have fulfilled this prophecy unless it were true. And it was. It was fulfilled by Jesus, a man born in Bethlehem who came and fulfilled this prophecy in 30 30 to 33 A.D. And the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's crazy. That's crazy. You can't convince me that God doesn't know the future. And that he's not in working all these things out. And that he's not in control. And that he's not true. I mean, you just can't convince me. Then we look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, 19, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So here you have another prophecy about this coming king who would establish peace to all the nations, and his reign and dominion would encompass the entire earth. So now we're not even just talking about a Messiah that's going to come and reign over just Israel. Now we're talking about he's going to have dominion over the entire globe, which we know is going to be true. And then Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Here we again, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. I want to read this because I want to let you know um, why we say some of the things we say about heaven. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And this is talking about, he's, he's prophesying about the coming Messiah. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. This gives this idea of this omniscience. That he will execute justice and he will judge cases not like we do, by what on what we see and what we hear. He will know hearts. 
He will know details. He will know things that we can't possibly know. And he will execute perfect justice. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. And here is not, we just talked about omniscience. Now we're talking about omnipotence. Where he has complete power. He's not just going out into battle like humans. He's not going out with a sword. All he's got to do is speak it and it's going to happen. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf, here here it comes. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together and the child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And this is the, the, what we talk about, and that when God recreates the earth, and when he comes back and he puts everything the way it's supposed to be, and he does away with sin. What do you have here? You have a picture that Isaiah is given, a picture that God is going to restore the actual earth that we live on, this place. He's going to restore it to be just like in the Garden of Eden. It says right here, it says, all of the animals get along together, And then it says, the lion will eat straw like cattle. And that's what we read in the garden. Is that all the animals and all the creatures were given every green plant to eat. That's what they were given to eat to begin with. And so I've I've heard different scientists on YouTube and stuff. I've heard them make comments of, well, we know by the dinosaurs' teeth, we know what they ate and all this stuff. And... And, and we can tell by, you know, if it's got crunching teeth and, you know, uh, or, you know, some teeth are good for, for eating grass. And then if you've got sharp pointed teeth, you know, that's good for tearing flesh and biting in these canines that we got. You know, apparently we're supposed to like, you know, be good at biting flesh. I don't recommend it. Your parents teach you don't bite. You know, I teach you don't bite. But the point is, they make all these judgments and assumptions about what creatures ate and things based on their teeth and and there's a lot of truth to to the fact that animals who eat similar things do have similar teeth but i attribute that to a designer a designer who has designed this animal to eat this type of food who has given it that type of teeth to be able to eat that type of food but here's the thing they say well sharp teeth that that signifies eating flesh and things like that have y'all ever seen vampire bats you know how sharp, pointed their teeth are? I mean, they're razor sharp. You know what they eat? Berries and fruit. <laughs> I'm just saying, their razor sharp teeth are not designed to eat flesh. They eat fruit. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But here we see a restoration of what it was like in the garden. So that takes us back full circle Yeah, let's go ahead and, I don't know if I'll get through these or not. But that takes us back full circle to the garden. And so here you have this idea of the garden where Adam and Eve are in the garden and then the serpent comes in. And the serpent was on a mission. 
The serpent was on a mission to kill and destroy Adam and Eve and all of their and all humanity. That was his mission. His mission was to get us to be evil, to act evil against God. And he accomplished his mission. And then God promised that one will come one day who's going to crush your head. So they look forward to that. And here comes Abraham. And Abraham's got great faith. Great faith. And you've you got to imagine that they were thinking, maybe, maybe he's the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. Maybe he's the one through his great faith that's going to accomplish this. But we see that he's just as sinful as everybody else. And we see he fails just the same. And he does not crush the serpent's head. And then you, you move on from him. you got Moses. And you think, surely a lot of the people had to have thought Moses is the one who has been promised, who is going to lead us in a, our nation as our king. He is the one that is going to be the one that's going to crush the serpent's head and, and lead us. This is the one that God has promised, about, promised us about. And I'm telling you, up to Moses' point, nobody stood out like Moses. Moses was a prime, perfect example. God said, nope, he's not going to be a king, and I'm not even going to let him into the promised land because we see him, he is sinful just like the rest of us. Then you get to David, and we're like, okay, David, he is an actual king. He, he is fulfilled, he's from the line of Judah, and he is a man after God's own heart. And God has shown us that we are to be just like David. He's going to lead us, he's going to deliver us from from our oppression and in, in, in many ways he did deliver them from the oppression oppression but we still see him fail and sin just like everybody else and he does not crush the serpent's head and so there's this expectation and this waiting and longing for someone who's going to fulfill these prophecies and is going to put an end to sin as we know it and that is exactly what we're reading from isaiah it's exactly what we're reading from him, is that the Messiah is not just going to be a military conquering king. The Messiah is going to put an end to sin in the world as we know it. He's going to put an end to all sin. And even the animals won't eat each other anymore. He's going to put an end to all sin. He's going to make the world just like it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. But nobody in the Old Testament was able to fulfill these promises. And we'll let's jump one more Isaiah verse. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Which is the only way that he is going to be able to actually give us a Messiah who will actually be able to crush the head of the serpent is if God himself comes to do it himself. Because we as people don't have it in us not to sin. And so Matthew 1, 20-23, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will give him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Jesus was the one who was from the line of David, who was born in Bethlehem, who lived and died before the destruction of the second temple, who was able to crush the serpent's head by, having, by sacrificing himself in the process. And the only way he was able to do it is because he was God with us. God knew, and that takes us very beginning, God knew in the very, very, very beginning with Adam and Eve when they first sinned. And he told them, I'm going to send one from you that's going to crush this serpent's head and at the same time is going to have his heel struck at the same time. He said in the very, very beginning, he said, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. I've got it all figured out. I will put an end to sin. Which means, as we all know, he knew what it was going to cost him before he made Adam and Eve. He knew it. He knew what it was going to cost him from the very beginning, and he still chose to make us. Because he loves us. And I don't think, you know, that's the moral of my sermon today. God loves us. That's it. I mean, that is the summation of the point of this sermon. To show through the scriptures, because we're talking about the kingdom of God and the Messiah, to show through the scriptures that he knew from the beginning what it was going to cost him. And he knew it before he made Adam and Eve. And he made them anyway. Point is, that's how much he loves us. And people need to know that. Because there are so many people who have been convinced by Satan that God does not love you, love you and me. There are so many people that are convinced of that. That I've done so much wrong that God could not possibly love me. And God has showed us over and over and over and over that the amount of wrong you've done does not deny my love for you. Because every person that he's loved and every person that he's died for all have done tremendous wrong. All of them. He loves us no matter what. And so when we want to talk with people about God's love for them, you can talk about it in this idea of the kingdom of God. And say, God has got a perfect kingdom in store for all of us. And he's had a plan to restore us and to save us from our sins from the very beginning. And he knew from the very beginning that we were going to mess up. All of us. He knew from the very beginning. And he knew it was going to cost him the life of his son. He knew how much it was going to cost him before he made us. He had the choice. I don't have to make humans. And if he didn't make us, guess what? He didn't have to die. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to be crucified. He didn't have to be beat. He didn't have to go through any of that. He didn't have to suffer with us for thousands and thousands of years of longing to be with us and desiring a relationship with us and us spitting at him and mocking him and rejecting him and cursing him and accusing him of being evil when he is the opposite of evil, accusing him of being wrong. He didn't have to go through all that. I mean, think about and I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. But just think about that one thing. 
If you love somebody dearly, and you have no ill feelings towards that person, you love them with all your heart, and they turn against you and say that they hate you and that you don't really love them, you don't really care about them, you just care about yourself, and they make all kinds of false accusations, you can't tell me that doesn't cut you to the soul. And I promise you God feels the same way infinitely more about every person he's placed on this earth who has rejected him and turned on him and accused him of evil and accused him of wrong. God is cut to the heart, to the soul because he loves them so much. And there's an enemy who wants to keep perpetrating that lie and keep convincing people that God doesn't love them. And that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. He said, God, you won't die. God doesn't want you to eat that because he don't want you to be like him. He don't really care about you. He just cares about him. He don't really love you. And it's the same lie from then until today. And we've got to be ones who not just say it, but we've got to show it by loving others who disagree with us, even as hard as it seems to be sometimes. And I'll be the first one up here to admit when I've been in conversations with people who are completely disagreed with me and, and just, just made it known, because some people have those personalities, you know. Some people just let you know. It's hard. It's hard to, to, to keep that humble attitude. But, when we take a second and step back and say, you know what, it doesn't matter what they're calling me. It doesn't matter what they're saying about me. Because the truth is, they're the ones that are hurting. They're the ones who are lost and detached and separated from God. It, it, it's hard to swallow that pill because it's a pill called pride. You have to swallow that pride and say, and put aside this, oh, you don't talk to me that way. You don't accuse me of this. You know, that's called pride. We have, to, we have to put that aside. And that's hard to do when you're in the moment. But it's something that Jesus did. And it's something that we've got to do. When he was being crucified on the cross and the soldiers were splitting up his garments, they said, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they didn't. They had no idea. Jesus' heart was not one of bitterness and anger because it could have been if it was us. I promise you, every one of us, we'd be up on that cross and we'd be thinking, you have no idea what I've done for you. I gave you life. I give you breath. I put you in existence. I gave everything. I made this world good for you. That's what we would do. Our mindset would be, how dare you treat me this way after all I've done for you? But that wasn't his heart. Because he knew while they were still alive, they still had a chance to repent and come to forgiveness. He knew they still had a chance. And that's, the, that's what we got to keep in our minds. As long as these people are still alive in our lives, we still got a chance to reach them. We just got to love them. And Jesus' love has done more for, to change people's hearts than any amount of, honestly, any amount of, of intellect or, or conversation or anything like that has done. His love has done more than any amount of words have, have done. Well, I love y'all.
I love y'all to death. I, uh, I'm I'm enjoying going through going through this with y'all. Um, but but let's just pray to God and to give us a heart like He's got, you know, a heart of love, a heart of compassion for every single person that we encounter in this world, regardless of how they treat us or what they think about us or what they call us, regardless of any of that, that we try to maintain that same heart of love that God has for us. And if we can, I promise you, we will shine like a light in the darkness in this world and we will make a humongous impact on the people around us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and Father, we thank you. Father, I just want to take a second and just thank you that your scripture is clear that you knew from the very beginning every single thing that was going to happen that you were going to have to come to this earth as our creator and be treated as a criminal to be mocked beaten insulted not appreciated spit on whipped flogged crucified betrayed abandoned but we we know from your word that it's because of your great love for us that you are willing to do that that you actually preferred and desired a reality where you had to experience that and you still on a daily basis this was not just a one time event 2000 years ago this is from the beginning of history to today into the future that you are constantly and daily rejected and cut to the heart by the people that you love and created and placed in this world in order to have a relationship forever with as a father to them and for them to be your son and daughter that you are rejected and abandoned by them every day. And Father, it's all of our story. And so, Father, we just thank you that you have forgiven us for doing the exact same thing. And we thank you that you have pursued us and never gave up on us. And so, Father, we just, we just ask that you help us to be like you, that you help shape our hearts like your heart, that you would help us to love like you love, and that we would shine as a light in the darkness all around us. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.